This is Five Nights at Freddy's The Silver Eyes. It's actually by Scott Cawthorn, who is the original author of the uh, first game. Um, he wrote this in part with Kira Breed Risley. So this is chapter one of The Silver Eyes. He sees me. Charlie dropped to her knees and hands. She was wedged behind a row of arcade games cramped in the crawl space between the consoles and the wall, tangled electrical cords and useless plugs strewn beneath her. She was cornered. The only way out was past the thing, and she wasn't fast enough to make it. She could see him stalking back and forth, catching flickers of movement through the gaps between the games. There was scarcely enough room to move, but she tried to crawl backward. Her foot caught on a cord. She stopped contorting herself to carefully dislodge it. She heard the clash of metal on metal, and the farthest console rocked back against the wall. He hit it again, shattering the display, then attacked the next, crashing against them, almost rhythmically, tearing through the machinery, coming closer. I have to get out. The panicked thought was of no help, for there was no way out. Her arm ached, and she wanted to sob aloud. Blood had soaked through the tattered bandage, and it seemed as though she could feel it draining out of her. The console, a few feet away, crashed against the wall and Charlie flinched. He was getting closer. She could hear the grinding of gears and the clicking of servos ever louder. Eyes closed, she could still see the way he looked at her, see the matted fur and exposed metal beneath the synthetic flesh. Suddenly, the console in front of her was wrenched away. It toppled over, thrown down like a toy. The power cords beneath her hands and knees were yanked away, and Charlie slipped, almost falling. She caught herself and looked up just in time to see the downward swing of a hook. Welcome to Hurricane Utah. Charlie smiled wearily at the sign and kept driving. The world didn't look any different from one side of the sign to the other, but she felt a nervous anticipation as she passed it. She didn't recognize anything. Then again, she hadn't really expected to, not this far at the edge of town where it was all highway and empty spaces. She wondered what the others would look like, who they were now. Ten years ago, they had been best friends, and then it happened, and everything ended, at least for Charlie. She hadn't seen any of them since she was seven years old. They had written all the time as kids, especially Marla, who wrote like she talked, fast and incoherent. But as they got older, they had grown apart. The letters had grown fewer and further between, and the conversations leading up to this trip had been perfunctory and full of awkward pauses. Charlie repeated their names as though to reassure herself that she still remembered them. Marla, Jessica, Lamar, Carlton, John, and Michael. Michael was the reason for this trip, after all. It was ten years since he died. Ten years since it happened. And now his parents wanted them all together for the dedication ceremony. They wanted all his old friends, where they announced the scholarships they were creating in his name. Charlie knew it was a good thing to do, but the gathering still felt slightly macabre. She shivered and turned down the air conditioning, even though she knew it was not that cold. As she drove into the town center, Charlie began to recognize things. A few stores and a movie theater, which was now advertising the summer's blockbuster hit. She felt a brief moment of surprise, then smiled at herself. <laughs> well, what did you expect? 
that the whole place would remain unchanged, a monument to the moment of your departure, frozen forever in July of 1985. Well, to be fair, that was exactly what she had expected. She looked at her watch, still a few hours to kill before they would all meet up. She thought about going to the movie, but she knew what she really wanted to do. Charlie made a left turn and headed out of town. Ten minutes later, she pulled to a stop and got out. The house loomed before her, its dark outline a wound in the bright blue sky. Charlie leaned back against the car, slightly dizzy. She took a moment to steady herself with deep breaths. She had known it would be here. An illicit look through her aunt's bank books a few years before had told her that the mortgage was paid off and that Aunt Jen was still paying property taxes. It had only been ten years. There was no reason it should have changed at all. Charlie climbed the steps slowly, taking in the peeling paint. The third stair still had a loose board, and the rose bushes had taken over one side of the porch, their thorns biting hungrily into the wood. The door was locked, but Charlie still had her key. She had never actually used it. As she took it from around her neck and slid it into the lock, she remembered her father putting its chain around her neck. In case you ever need it. Well, she needed it now. The door opened easily and Charlie looked around. She didn't remember much about the first couple of years here. She had only been three years old and all the memories had faded together in the blur of a child's grief and loss and not understanding why her mother had to go away, clinging to her father every moment, not trusting the world around her unless he was there. Unless she was holding tightly to him, burying herself in his flannel shirts and the smell of grease and hot metal and him. The stairs stretched straight up in front of her, but she did not move directly to them. Instead, she went into the living room where all the furniture was still in place. She had not really noticed it as a child, but the house was a little too large for the furniture they had. Things were spread out too wildly in order to fill the space. The coffee table was too far from the couch to reach, the easy chair too far across the room to carry on a conversation. There was a dark stain in the wooden floorboards near the center of the room. Charlie stepped around it quickly and went to the kitchen where the cupboards held only a few pots, pans, and dishes. Charlie had never felt a lack of anything as a child, but it seemed now that the unnecessary enormity of the house was a sort of apology, the attempt of a man who had lost so much to give his daughter what he could. He'd always had a way of overdoing whatever he did. The last time she was here, the house had been dark and everything felt wrong. She was carried up the stairs to her bedroom, although she was seven years old and could have gone quicker on her own two feet. But Aunt Jen had stopped on the front porch, picked her up and carried her, shielding her face as though she were a baby in the glaring sun. In her room, Aunt Jen set Charlie down and closed the bedroom door behind them. She told her to pack her suitcase and Charlie had cried because all her things could never fit into that small case. We can come back for the rest later, Aunt Jen said, her impatience leaking through as Charlie hovered indecisively at her dresser, trying to decide which t-shirts she should bring along. And they had never come back for the rest. Charlie mounted the stairs, heading to her old bedroom. The door was partially cracked, and as she opened it, she had a giddy feeling of displacement, as though her younger self might be sitting here among the toys, might look up and ask Charlie, Who are you? Charlie went in. Like the rest of her house, the, her bedroom was untouched. The walls were pale pink, and the ceiling, which sloped dramatically on one side to follow the line of the roof, was painted to match. 
Her old bed stood against the wall beneath a large window. The mattress was still intact, though. The sheets were gone. The window was cracked slightly open, and rotting lace curtains wavered in the gentle breeze from outside. There was a dark water stain in the paint beneath the window where the weather had gotten in over the years, betraying the house's neglect. Charlie climbed onto the bed and forced the window shut. It obeyed with a screech, and Charlie stepped back and turned her attention to the rest of the room, to her father's creations. Their first night in the house, Charlie had been afraid to sleep alone. She did not remember the night, but her father had told her about it often enough that the story had taken on the quality of a memory. She sat up and wailed until her father came in to find her, until he scooped her up and held her and promised her he would make sure she was never alone again. The next morning he took her by the hand and led her to the garage, where he set to work at keeping that promise. The first of his inventions was a purple rabbit, now gray with age from years of sitting in the sunlight. Her father named him Theodore. He was the size of a three-year-old child, her size at the time. And he had plush fur, shining eyes, and a dapper red bow tie. He didn't do much, only waved a hand and tilted his head to the side and said in her father's voice, I love you, Charlie. But it was enough to give her a night watcher, someone to keep her company when she could not sleep. Right now, Theodore sat in the white wicker chair in the far corner of the room. Charlie waved at him, but since he was not activated, he did not wave back. After Theodore, the toys got more complex. Some worked and some did not. Some seemed to have permanent glitches, while others simply did not appeal to Charlie's childish imagination. She knew her father took those back to his workshop and recycled them for parts, though she did not like to watch them be dismantled. But the ones that were kept, those she loved. They were here now, looking at her expectantly, smiling. Charlie pushed a button beside her bed, and it gave away stiffly, but nothing happened. She pushed it again, holding it down longer, and this time, across the room, and with the weary creak of metal on metal, the unicorn began to move. The unicorn. Charlie had named him Stanley for some reason she could no longer remember. He was made of metal, and had been painted glossy white. He trundled around the room on a circular track bobbing his head stiffly up and down. The track squealed as Stanley rounded the corner and came to a stop beside the bed. Charlie knelt beside him on the floor and patted his flanks. His glossy paint was chipped and peeling, and his face had given over to rust. His eyes were lively, gazing out of the decay. You need a new coat of paint, Stanley, Charlie said, and the unicorn stared ahead, unresponsive. At the foot of the bed, there was a wheel, made of patched-together metal, and it had always reminded her of something she might find on a submarine. Charlie turned it, and it stuck for a moment, then gave way, rotating as it always did, and across the room, the smallest closet door swung open. Out sailed Ella on her track, a child-sized doll bearing a teacup and a saucer in her tying hands like an offering. Ella's plaid dress was still crisp, and her patent leather shoes still shone. Perhaps the closet had protected her from the damage of the damp. Charlie had an identical outfit back when she and Ella were the same height. Hey, Ella, she said softly. As the wheel unwound, Ella retreated to the closet again, the door closing behind her. Charlie followed her. The closets had been built to align with the slant of the ceiling, and there were three of them. Ella lived in the shortest one, which was about three and a half feet tall. Next to it was one foot or so taller, and the third closet to the bedroom door was the same height as the rest of the room. She smiled, remembering. Why do you have three closets? 
John had demanded the first time he came over. She looked at him blankly, confused by the question. <laughs> because that's how many there are, she said. She pointed defensively at the littlest one. But that one's Ella's anyway, she added. John nodded. He was satisfied. Charlie shook her head and opened the door to the middle closet. Or tried to. The knob stopped with a jolt. It was locked. She rattled it a few times but gave up without much conviction. She stayed crouched low to the floor and glanced up at the tallest closet. Her big girl closet that she would someday grow into. You won't need it until you are bigger, her father would say. But that day never came. The door now hung open slightly, but Charlie didn't disturb it. It hadn't opened for her. It was only given way to time. As she moved to stand, she noticed something shiny half hidden under the rim of the locked middle door. She leaned forward to pick it up. It looked like a broken off piece of circuit board. She smiled slightly. Nuts, bolts, scraps, and parts had turned up all over the place once upon a time. Her father always had stray parts in his pocket. He would carry around something he was working on, set it down, and forget where it was, or worse, put something aside for safekeeping, never to be seen again. There was also a strand of her hair clinging to it. She unwound it carefully from the tiny lip of metal that it was stuck on. Finally, as though she had been putting it off, Charlie crossed the room and picked up Theodore. His back had not faded into the sun like the front of his body, and it was the same rich dark purple she'd remembered. She pressed the button at the base of his neck, but he remained lifeless. His fur was threadbare, one ear hanging loose by a single rotting thread, and through the hole she could see the green plastic of his circuit board. Charlie held her breath, listening fearfully for something. Ioli, the rabbit said in a barely audible, haltering voice. And Charlie set him down, her face hot and her chest pinched tight. She had not really expected to hear her father's voice again. I love you too, she thought. We're going to take a brief break for an ad, and we'll be right back. Charlie looked around the room. When she was a child, it had been her own magical world, and she was possessive of it. Only a few chosen friends were ever even allowed inside. She went to her bed and set Stanley moving on his track again. She left, closing the door behind her before the little unicorn came to a halt. She went out the back door to the driveway and stopped in front of the garage that had been her father's workshop. Half buried in gravel, a few feet away was a piece of metal, and Charlie went to pick it up. It was jointed in the middle, and she held it in her hands, smiling a little as she bent back and forth. Ah, an elbow joint, she thought. I wonder what he was going to do with it. She had stood in this exact spot many times before. She closed her eyes, and the memory overwhelmed her. She was a little girl again, sitting on the floor of her father's workshop playing with scraps of wood and metal as though they were toy blocks, trying to build a tower with the uneven pieces. The shop was hot and she was sweaty, grime sticking to her legs as she sat in her shorts and sneakers. She could almost smell the sharp and metallic odor of the soldering iron. Her father was nearby, never out of sight, working on Stanley the Unicorn. Stanley's face was still unfinished, one side white and shining and friendly with a gleaming brown eye that seemed almost to see. The other half of the toy's face was all exposed circuit boards and metal parts. Charlie's father looked at her and smiled, and she smiled back, beloved. In a darkened corner behind her father, barely visible, hung a jumbled metal of limbs and a twisted skeleton with burning silver eyes. Every once in a while, it gave an uncanny twitch. Charlie tried never to look at it, but as her father worked 
As she played with her makeshift toys, her eyes were drawn back to it again and again. The limbs contorted, seeming almost mocking the thing, a ghastly jester. And yet, there was something about it that suggested an enormous pain. Daddy, Charlie said, and her father did not look up from his work. Daddy, she said again, more urgently, and this time he turned to her slowly, as though not fully present in their world. What is it that you need, sweetheart? She looked at the metal skeleton. Does it hurt? She wanted to ask the question, but when she looked into her father's eyes, she found that she could not, so she just shook her head. Nothing. He nodded at her with an absent smile and went back to his work. Behind him, the creature gave another awful twitch, and its eyes still burned. Charlie shivered and drew herself back to the present. She glanced behind her, feeling exposed. She looked down and her gaze fixed on something. Three widely spaced grooves in the ground. She knelt, thoughtful, and ran her finger over one of them. The gravel was scattered away, the marks worn heavily into the dirt. A camera tripod, perhaps? It was the first unfamiliar thing she had seen. The door to the workshop was cracked open slightly and inviting, but she felt no desire to go inside. Quickly, she headed back to her car, but she stopped as soon as she settled into the driver's seat. Her keys were gone, having probably fallen out of her pocket somewhere inside the house. She retraced her steps, merely glancing into the living room and the kitchen before heading up to her bedroom. The keys were on the wicker chair beside Theodore the rabbit. She picked them up and jangled them for a moment, not quite ready to leave the room behind, perhaps. She sat down on the bed. Stanley the unicorn had stopped beside the bed as he always did, and as she sat she patted him absently on the head. It had grown dark while she was outside, and the room was now cast in shadows. Somehow, without the bright sunlight, the toy's flaws and deterioration were thrown into sharp relief. Theodore's eyes no longer shone, and his thin fur and hanging ear made him look like a sickly vagabond. When she looked down at Stanley, the rust around his eyes made them look like hollow sockets, and his bare teeth, which she had always thought of as a smile, became the awful knowing grin of a skull. Charlie stood up, careful not to touch him, and hurried towards the door, but her foot caught on the wheel beside the bed. She tripped on the tracks and fell sprawling to the floor. There was a whirr of spinning metal, and as she raised her head, a small pair of feet appeared under her nose, clad in shining patent leather. She looked up. There above her was Ella, staring down at her, silent and uninvited, her glassy eyes almost appearing to see. The teacup and saucer were held out before her with a military stiffness. Charlie got up cautiously, taking care not to disturb the doll. She left the room, stepping carefully to avoid accidentally activating any other toys. As Charlie went, Ella retreated to her closet, almost matching her pace. Charlie hurried down the stairs, seized by an urgency to get away. In the car, she fumbled the car key three times before sliding it into place. She backed too fast down the driveway, running recklessly over the grass of the front yard, and sped away. After about a mile, Charlie pulled over onto the shoulder and turned the car off, staring straight ahead through the windshield. Her eyes focused on nothing. She forced herself to breathe slowly. She reached up and adjusted the rearview mirror so she could see herself. She always expected to see pain and anger and sorrow written on her face. But they never were. Her cheeks were pink, and her round face looked almost cheerful, like always. 
Her first weeks living with Aunt Jen, she heard the same things over and over when Aunt Jen introduced her. What a pretty child. What a happy-looking child she is. Charlie always looked like she was about to smile, her brown eyes wide and sparkling, her thin mouth ready to curve up, even when she wanted to sob. The incongruity was a mild betrayal. She ran her fingers through her light brown hair, as though that would magically fix its slight frizziness and put the mirror back into its position. She turned the car back on and searched for the radio station, hoping that music might bring her fully back into reality. She flipped from station to station, not really hearing what any of them were playing, and finally just settled on an AM broadcast with a host who seemed to be yelling condescendingly at his audience. She had no idea what he was talking about, but the brash and annoying sound was enough to jar her back into the present. The clock in the car was always wrong, so she checked her watch. It was almost time to meet her friends at the dinner party that they had chosen, near the center of town. Charlie pulled back onto the road and drove, letting the sound of the angry radio host soothe her mind. When she reached the restaurant, Charlie pulled into the lot and stopped, but she did not park. The front of the diner had a long picture window all across it, and she could see right inside. Though she had never seen them for years, it took her only a moment to spot her friends through the glass. Jessica was the easiest to pick out from the crowd. She always enclosed pictures with her letters, and right now she looked exactly like her last photo. Even seated, she was clearly taller than either of the boys, and she was very thin. Though Charlie could not see her old outfit, she was wearing a loose white shirt with an embroidered vest, and she had a brimmed hat perched on her glossy shoulder-length brown hair, with an enormous flower threatening to tip it off her head. She was gesturing excitedly about something as she was speaking. The two boys were sitting next to each other, facing her. Carlton looked like an older version of his red-headed childhood self. He still had a bit of a baby face, but his features had been refined, and his hair was carefully tousled and held in place by some alchemic hair product. He was almost pretty, for a boy, and he wore a black workout shirt, though she doubted he'd ever worked out a day in his life. He slouched forward on the table, resting his chin on his hands. Beside him, John sat closest to the window. John had been the kind of child who got dirty before he even went outside. There would be paint on his shirt before the teacher handed out the watercolors, grass stains on his knees before they even came near a playground, and dirt under his fingernails just after he washed his hands. Charlie knew it was him because he had had to be, but he did look completely different. The grubbiness of childhood had been replaced by something crisp and clean. He was wearing a neatly pressed light green button-down shirt. The sleeves rolled up and the collar open, preventing him from looking too uptight. He was leaning back confidently in the booth, nodding enthusiastically, apparently absorbed in whatever Jessica was saying. The only concession to his former self was his hair, sticking up all over his head, and he had a five o'clock shadow, a smug adult version of the dirt he had always covered himself in as a kid. Charlie smiled to herself. John had been something like a childhood crush before either of them really understood what that even meant. He gave her cookies from his Transformers lunchbox, and once in kindergarten he took the blame when she broke the glass jar that held the colored beads for arts and crafts. She remembered the moment when it slipped from her hands, and she watched it fall. She could not have moved fast enough to catch it, but she would not have even tried. She wanted to see it break. The glass hit the wood floor and shattered into a thousand pieces, and the beads scattered, many-colored among the shards. She thought it was beautiful, but then she started to cry. 
John had a note sent home to his parents, and when she told him thank you, he had winked at her with an irony beyond his years and simply said, Oh, for what? After that, John was allowed to come to her room. She let him play with Stanley and Theodore, watching anxiously the first time he'd learned to press the buttons and make them move. She would be crushed if he didn't like them, knowing instinctively that it would make her think less of him. They were her family. But John was fascinated as soon as he saw them. He loved her mechanical toys, and so she loved him. Two years later, behind a tree, beside her father's workshop, she almost let him kiss her. And then, it happened. And everything ended. At least for Charlie. Charlie shook herself, forcing her mind back to the present, looking again at Jessica's polished appearance. She glanced down at herself, purple t-shirt, denim jacket, black jeans, and combat boots. It had felt like a good choice this morning, but now she wished she had chosen something else. This is all you ever wear, she reminded herself. She parked and locked the car behind her, even though the people in Hurricane did not usually lock their cars. Then she went into the diner to meet her friends for the first time in ten years. The warmth, noise, and light of the restaurant hit her in a wave as she entered. For a moment, she was overwhelmed, but Jessica saw her pause in the doorway and shouted her name. Charlie smiled and went over to her. Hi, she said awkwardly, flicking her eyes at each of them, but not fully making contact. Jessica scooted over on a red vinyl bench and patted the seat beside her. Here, sit, she said. I was just telling John and Carlton about my glamorous life. She rolled her eyes as she said it, managing to convey both self-deprecation and a sense that her life was truly something exciting. Yeah, did you know Jessica lives in New York? Carlton said. There was something careful about the way he spoke, like he was thinking about his words before he formed them. John was silent, but he smiled at Charlie anxiously. Jessica rolled her eyes again, and with a flash of deja vu, Charlie suddenly recalled that this has been a habit even when they were children. Eight million people live in New York, Carlton. It's not exactly an achievement, Jessica said as Carlton shrugged. Well, I've never been anywhere, he said. I didn't know you still lived in town, Charlie replied slowly. Where else am I going to live? My family's been here since 1896, he added, deepening his voice to mimic his father. Is that even true? Charlie asked. Oh, I don't know, Carlton said in his own register. It could be. My dad ran for mayor two years ago. I mean, he lost, but still, who runs for mayor? He made a face. I swear the day I turn 18, I am going to be out of here. Oh, but where are you going to go? John asked, looking seriously at Carlton. Carlton met his eyes, just as serious for a moment. Abruptly, he broke away and pointed out the window, closing one eye as if to get his true aim. John raised an eyebrow as he looked out the window, trying to follow the line Carlton was pointing to. Charlie looked, too. Carlton wasn't pointing at anything. John opened his mouth to say something, but Carlton interrupted. Or, he said as smoothly pointed in the opposite direction. Okay, okay. John scratched his head, looking slightly embarrassed. Anywhere else, right? He added with a laugh. Where's everyone else? Charlie asked, peering out the window and searching the parking lot for the new arrivals. Uh, tomorrow, John said. They're coming tomorrow morning, Jessica jumped in to clarify. Marla's bringing her little brother. Can you believe it? Oh, Jason? Charlie smiled. She remembered Jason as a little bundle of blankets with a tiny red face peeking out. I mean, who wants a baby around? Jessica adjusted her hat primly. I'm pretty sure she that he's not a baby anymore, Charlie said, stifling a laugh. 
Oh, he's practically a baby, Jessica said. Anyway, I booked us a room at the motel down by the highway. It was all I could find. The boys are going to stay with Carlton. Oh, okay, Charlie said. She was vaguely impressed by Jessica's organization, but she wasn't happy about the plan. She was loath to share a room with Jessica, who now seemed like a stranger. Jessica had become the kind of girl who intimidated her, polished and immaculate, speaking as though she had everything in life figured out. For a moment, Charlie considered going back to her old house for the night, but as soon as she had that thought, the idea repelled her. That house, at night. It was no longer the province of the living. Oh, don't be dramatic. She scolded herself mentally, but now John was speaking. He had a way of commanding attention with his voice, probably because he spoke less often than everyone else. He spent most of the time listening, but not out of retentance. He was gathering information, speaking only when he had wisdom or sarcasm to dispense. Often it was both at once. Does anybody know what's even happening tomorrow? They were all silent for a moment, and the waitress took the opportunity to come over for their order. Charlie flipped quickly through the menu, her eyes not really focusing on the words. Her turn to order came much faster than she was expecting, and she froze. Uh, eggs? She said at last. The woman's hard expression was still fixed on her, and she realized she had not finished. Um, scrambled, uh, we toast, she added, and the woman went away. Charlie looked back down at the menu. She hated this about herself. When she was caught off guard, she seemed to lose all ability to act or process. What was going on around her? People were incomprehensible. Their demands alien. Ordering dinner shouldn't be this hard, she thought. The others had begun their conversation again, and she turned her attention to them, feeling like she had fallen behind. What do we even say to his parents, Jessica was saying. Carlton, do you ever see them? Charlie asked. Uh, not really, he said. I mean, around, I guess, sometimes. I'm surprised they even stayed in Hurricane, Jessica said with a note of worldly disapproval in her voice. Charlie said nothing, but she thought, how could they not? His body had never been found. How could they not have secretly hoped that one day he might come home, no matter how impossible they knew it was? How could they leave the only home Michael knew? It would mean really finally giving up on him. Maybe that's what this scholarship was, though, an admission that he was never coming home. Charlie was acutely aware that they were in a public place where talking about Michael felt very inappropriate. They were, in a sense, both outsiders and insiders. They had been closer to Michael probably more than anyone in this restaurant, but, with the exception of Carlton, they were no longer from Hurricane. They did not belong. She saw the tears falling on her paper placemat before she felt them, and she hurriedly wiped her eyes, looking down and hoping that no one had noticed. When she looked up, John appeared to be studying his silverware, but she knew that he must have seen. She was grateful to him for not trying to comfort her. "'John, do you still write?' Charlie asked. John had declared himself an author when they were about six, having learned to read and write when he was four, a year ahead of the rest of them. At the age of seven, he completed his first novel, and he pressed his poorly spelled, inscrutably illustrated creation on his friends and family, demanding reviews. Charlie remembered that she had given him only two stars. John laughed at the question. I actually do my ease the right way these days, he said. I can't believe you remember that, but I do actually, yes. He stopped clearly wanting to say more. What do you write? Carlton obliged, and John looked down at his placemat, speaking mostly to the table. Uh, you know, short stories mostly. I actually had one published last year. I mean, it was just a magazine, nothing big. 
They all made suitable noises of being impressed, and he looked up again, embarrassed but pleased. What, uh, what was the story about? Charlie asked. John hesitated, but before he could speak or decide not to, the waitress returned with their food. They had all ordered from the breakfast menu. Coffee, eggs, bacon, blueberry pancakes for Carlton. The brightly colored food looked hopeful, like a fresh start to the day. Charlie took a bite of her toast, and they all ate silently for a moment. Hey, Carlton, John said suddenly. Whatever happened to Freddy's? There was a brief hush. Carlton looked nervously at Charlie, and Jessica stared up at the ceiling. John flushed red, and Charlie spoke hastily. It's okay, Carlton. I'd like to know, too. Carlton shrugged, stabbing at his pancakes nervously with his fork. Uh, well, they, they built over it, he said. Oh, what did they build? Jessica asked. Is there something else there now? Was it built over or just torn down? John asked. Carlton shrugged again, like a nervous tick. Uh, like I said, I don't know. It's too far back from the road to see, and I haven't exactly investigated. It might have been leased to someone, but I don't know what they did with it. It's all been blocked off for years, under construction. You can't even tell if the building is still there. So it could still be there, Jessica asked with a spark of excitement breaking through. Like I said, I don't know, Carlton answered. Charlie felt the dinner, diner's fluorescent lights glaring down on her face. Suddenly, they were far too bright. She felt exposed. She had barely eaten, but she found herself rising from the booth, pulling a few crumpled bills from her pocket and dropping them on the table. I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm gonna go outside for a minute, she said. Uh, smoke break, she added hastily. You don't smoke. She chided herself for the clumsy lie that she had made on her way to the door, jostling past a family of four without saying excuse me, and stepped out into the cool evening. She walked to her car and sat on the hood, the metal denting slightly under her weight. She took in breaths of cool air, as if it were water, and closed her eyes. You knew what would come up. You knew you would have to talk about it, she reminded herself. She had practiced on the drive over here, had forced herself to think back to happy memories to smile and say, Oh, remember when? She thought she was prepared for this, but of course she had been wrong. Why else would she have to run out of the restaurant like a child? Charlie? She opened her eyes and saw John standing next to the car, holding her jacket in front of him like an offering. You forgot your jacket, he said, and she made herself smile at him. Thanks, she said. She took it and draped it over her shoulder and then slid on the car's hood for him to sit. Uh, sorry about that, she said in the dim lights of the parking lot. She could still see him blush to the ears. He joined her on the car's hood, leaving a deliberate space between them. I... I haven't learned to think before I talk. I'm, I'm sorry. John watched the sky as a plane passed overhead. Charlie smiled. This time it was on forced. It's okay. I knew it was going to come up. I mean, it had to. I just... It sounds stupid, but I never think about it. I don't let myself. No one knows what happened except my aunt, and we never talk about it. Then I come here, and suddenly it's everywhere. I I guess I was just surprised, that's all. Uh-oh, John pointed out, and Charlie saw Jessica and Carlton hesi hesitating in the doorway of the diner. She waved for them to come over, and they came. Remember that time at Freddy's? When the merry-go-round got stuck, and Marla and that mean kid Billy had to keep writing it until their parents plucked them off, Charlie said, and John laughed, and the sound made her smile. Their faces were so bright red, crying like babies. She covered her face guilty that that was so funny to her. There was a brief surprise silence, then Carlton started laughing. Right, then Marla puked all over him. Ah, sweet justice, Charlie said. 
Well, actually, I think that was the nachos, John added. Jessica wrinkled her nose. It's so gross. I never wrote it again after that. Oh, come on, Jessica, they cleaned it, said Carlton. I'm pretty sure kids puked all over that place. Those wet floor signs weren't there for nothing, right? Right, Charlie, he added. Don't look at me, Charlie said. I never puked. We used to spend so much time there. Uh, privileges of knowing the owner's daughter, Jessica said, looking at Charlie with mock accusation. Well, I couldn't help who my dad was, Charlie said, laughing. Jessica looked thoughtful for a moment before she continued. I mean, how could you have a better childhood than spending all day at Freddy Fazbear's Pizza? Oh, I don't know, said Carlton. I think that music got to me over the years. He hummed a few bars of the familiar song. Charlie dipped her head to it, recalling the tune. You know, honestly, I love those animals so much, Jessica said suddenly. I mean, I guess what's the proper term for them, though? Animals? Robots? Mascots? Oh, I think those are all accurate, Charlie leaned back. Well, anyway, I used to go and I would, I would talk to the bunny. Uh, what was his name? Uh, that was Bonnie, Charlie said. Yeah, said Jessica. I used to complain to him about my parents. I always thought he had an understanding look about him. Carlton laughed. Ha, animatronic therapy, recommended by six out of seven crazy people. Oh, shut up, Jessica retorted. I knew he wasn't real. I just liked talking to him. Charlie smiled a little. Yeah, I remember that, she said. Jessica in her prim little dress, her brown hair and two tight braids like a little kid out of an old book, walking up to the stage when the show was over, whispering earnestly to the life-size animatronic rabbit. If anyone came up beside her, she went instantly silent and still waiting for them to go away so she could resume her one-sided conversations. Charlie had never talked to the animals at her father's restaurant or felt close to them like some kids seemed to. Although she liked them, they belonged to the public, and she had her own toys. She had her own mechanical friends waiting for her at home that belonged only to her. I liked Freddy, said John. He always seemed the most relatable. You know, there are a lot of things about my childhood that I can't remember at all, Carlton said. But I swear I can close my eyes and see every last detail of that place. Even the gum that I used to stick under the table. Gum? Yeah, right. Those were boogers. Jessica took a tiny step away from Carlton. He grinned. Hey, I was seven. What do you want? You all picked on me back then. Remember when Marla wrote Carlton smells like feet on the wall outside? Well, you did smell like feet. Jessica laughed with a sudden outburst. Carlton shrugged unperturbed. I used to try to hide it when I was when it was time to go home. I wanted to be stuck in there overnight so I could have the whole place to myself. Yeah, you always kept everyone waiting, said John, and you always hid under the same table. Charlie spoke slowly, and when she did, everyone turned to her as though they had been waiting. Sometimes, I feel like I remember every inch of it, like Carlton, she said. But sometimes it's like I hardly remember it at all. It's all in pieces, like I remember the carousel and that time it got stuck. I remember drawing on the placemats. I remember little things, eating that greasy pizza, hugging Freddy in the summer in his yellow fur, getting stuck all over my clothes. But a lot of it is like pictures, like it happened to someone else. They were all looking at her oddly. But Freddy was brown. Jessica looked to the others for confirmation. I guess you really don't remember that well after all, Carlton teased Charlie, and she laughed briefly. Uh, right, right, I meant brown, she said. Brown? Freddy was brown, of course he was. She could see him in her mind now, but somewhere in the depths of her recall, there was a flash of something else. Carlton launched into another story, and Charlie tried to turn her attention to him, but there was something disturbing, worrisome about that lapse in memory. 
It was 10 years ago. I mean, it's not like you've got dementia at 17, she told herself, but it was such a basic detail to have misremembered. Out of the corner of her eye, she caught John looking at her, a pensive expression on his face, as though she had said something rather important. You really don't know what happened to it, though? Jessica asked Carlton with more urgency in her voice than she intended. He stopped talking, surprised. Sorry, she said. Sorry, I I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, it's okay, he said. But yeah, no, I really don't know what happened. How can you not know you live here? Charlie, come on, said John. It's not like I hang around that part of town. Things are different. The town has grown, Carlton said mildly, seeming unruffled by her outburst. And I honestly don't look for reasons to go around there, you know? Why would I? There isn't any reason, not anymore. I mean, we could just go there. John said suddenly, and Charlie's heart skipped. Carlton looked nervously at Charlie. What? Seriously, it's a mess. I don't know if you can even get to it. Charlie found herself nodding. She felt as though she had spent the whole day weighed down by memory, seeing everything through a filter of years, and now she felt suddenly very alert, her mind fully present. She wanted to go. Yeah, let's do it, she said. Even if there's nothing there, I want to see. They were all silent. Suddenly, John smiled with reckless confidence. Yeah, let's do it. That is the end of chapter one of Five Nights at Freddy's The Silver Eyes.